everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. The question is, could a Japanese mushroom extract eradicate HPV, human papillomavirus? Well, the answer is yes. It's also one of the 10 best mushrooms you can have on a regular basis. The study was done at the University of Texas Health Science Center. They took a group of women, all of whom had human papillomavirus, and uh, which is the leading cause of cervical cancer. And they had them every day have the Japanese mushroom. It's also native to Asia and uh, the shiitake mushroom for six months. But at the end of three months, half the women no longer had human papillomavirus. And that was attributable directly to the anti-cancer impact of shiitake. Now we know that all mushrooms have some anti-cancer effect an immune-modulating effect. They're just terrific. Yeah, but this was, quote, very encouraging, according to the lead researcher. But they were on it uh, for six months, but then they followed them, and they still remained human papillomavirus-free. So, that's something really nice. Now, how would I do that? If I were counseling someone, I would say, first off, start with some barley miso, low-sodium miso. Miso is a fermented paste. You take a teaspoon, you put it into hot water, stir it around, not boiling water, hot water. It's a probiotic. It has a lot of immune-modulating benefits. But then, I would also take shiitake mushrooms, wash them. In restaurants, I don't believe most of them wash, but I wash them, then I press the juice out in my palms, my hand, both palms, till the water's out. Then I lightly roast them in an oven at about 300 degrees, for only about 10 minutes. Then they're ready. They're really, you could eat them, but I wouldn't at that point. What I do then is I, I put, dice them up, and I put them in the miso soup. I also put some diced up cauliflower and broccoli, asparagus, and Brussels sprouts, and kale, all in there with some seaweed. Now, what you have is you have a cornucopia of anti-cancer, cruciferous vegetables, and the most powerful anti-cancer, along with maitake mushroom, of, of the mushroom for cancer. So you're getting probiotics, you're getting things that block tumor formation, and there are thousands of studies, thousands, in the medical scientific literature why you should have mushrooms. And I like to have them every day, one cup, because when you cut them up, and I take the stem off, why? Because the stem is very pithy. It's ligosalish. You're not going to digest it. But the rest of it you will. And when you wash them and press them, and you then see it's oh, about a quarter of a cup after you, you know, press them down, it's really good for you. Now, from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, most everybody can lower your blood pressure by simply reducing the amount of salt. Recently, I had someone a long-time friend, 50 years, and was staying with me, who was going through some uh, health, health problems. It's a senior citizen, and much older than me, and, but someone who has not been on the healthiest diet. In fact, hasn't been on a healthy diet at all. When I was asking about his diet, I said, what kind of diet do you eat? Because we've, we've never eaten, you know, he's a, he's a professional friend. Uh, and he said, well, I eat healthy. What do you have? Everything he told me I would not recommend. 
But then I'm making a meal for him to show him how a healthy gourmet meal could taste. And I put it in front of him. First thing he does is he takes out the salt and starts. He's got his own little uh, complement of uh, spices. And he starts throwing in salt, a lot of it. I says, you, are you aware you just put about 2,000 milligrams of salt on your, on your dish? Oh, I, I, I have to put salt in everything. That's how I like the taste. And indeed, everything he put salt on. I said, well, that's going to raise your blood pressure. Well, guess he had a very high blood pressure. It was on medications. So just taking him off salt, all right, and replacing him with potassium-rich fruits and twice a day, six ounces to eight ounces of coconut water. Yeah, coconut water. If you start your day by having temperature, normal room temperature, coconut water, and squeeze the juice of two lemons into that coconut water, you can lower your blood pressure. And indeed, in one week, his blood pressure was normal, no medications. So nearly everyone can lower their blood pressure, even people currently on blood pressure reducing medications, by lowering their sodium intake. And this was done at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Northwestern Medicine and the University of Alabama. So three different came up, centers came up with the same outstanding results. Now that's particularly important because most people have more than a teaspoon a day of salt in their diet. And if you eat one, one fast food meal, the average fast food meal could contain up to 5,000 milligrams of sodium. You only need about 800. So you want to reverse it and put more potassium and less sodium in the diet. And look at labels. And like those olives, olives are really high in sodium. But you can get olives packed in water, not salt. So read the label. Get rid of the sodium. In fact, when Eutrice Lead was, uh, I was working with her here for four months, she was on, as she said, this is not, she said this publicly on the air on my show, she was on nine medications. When I asked her physician, why is she on three blood pressure lowering medications and her blood pressure is still, still excessively high? He said, well, there's nothing else can be done. Okay. He didn't mention diet, exercise. He didn't mention supplementation. He didn't mention meditation. He didn't mention stress medicine. Nothing. It's just, here's the medications. In the same way with diabetes. Multiple medications keep blood sugar. And still, with all those nine medications every day, her blood sugar was at uh, 203. So this presents a larger picture. And that is... We were able to get her blood pressure and her blood sugar down within 10 days to normal. No medication, she's off all medications. And then went on to help heal the lung cancer and the, uh, the cancer uh, on the ovaries and, and tachycardia and acute kidney failure, you name it. And she left here disease free. My hope is that. She continues the protocols and lives a long and, and a healthy life because she's a real asset to the community. 
And uh, so we'd like to see her back on the air doing her regular show. So all the best out to her. But amazing, people don't realize that the diets they're used to, the foods they like, are rich in sugars, including fructose and or sodium. And yet we're conditioned to develop a taste for this. Oh, I want something crunchy and salty or sweet and uh, sweet and soft. And so chemists concoct all these combinations of food. Do you remember a year and a half ago, they came out with fried chicken. The bun was two glazed donuts. Who thinks of that? <laughs> That's insane, in my opinion, because both the donut is unhealthy, leading to disease, and the fried chickens leads to disease. Too much protein and all those chemicals, and we become oblivious to this because we become impulsive. We're like Pavlovian dogs, the Russian scientists who would ring a bell and immediately the dogs would go from normal to salivating and wanting to eat because they've been conditioned when the bell rings, there's their food. Well, what happens when we're told to do something and we do it without thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I eating this? Why am I hungry? I'm, I just finished my dinner 20 minutes ago and I'm hungry again. I'm standing in front of a refrigerator like a zombie looking at what I need to eat when I haven't even digested the food to send me. This is what happens. And this is why we need to take a little time and focus on what we should be putting into our bodies. All right? More on that later. Anyhow, uh, there was a group of people, elderly and middle-aged people, and they looked at their diet and they had an awful lot of sodium. So when they took the salt out one teaspoon per day, the blood pressure returned to normal. All right? Uh, and they'll see a reduction. But if you exercise also, and you have some healthy juices, that enhances it. And from Northeastern University, mindfulness meditation, once again, something good, can help address the teen mental health crisis. In a paper published in Nature Mental Health, Northeastern psychologist professor Susan Gabriel advises policymakers to consider turning to low-cost, readily available practice of mindful meditation to change brain activity associated with mental illness. And it's working. You can overcome depression, anxiety. You can do a lot of good things if you meditate. And it keeps you in a better state of mind because you can put in that meditation what you want to feel. What do I want to feel? I want to feel calm. So I keep saying calm, 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 calm. And what do I want? Joy. So you start feeling more joyful. So these are simple things. It's not difficult to do. All right? But we have to do it on a daily basis. And find green space. Find quiet space. Right now I'm looking out the window here in Florida and it's raining. You might hear it. But that rain also is very calming. You know, you sit outside and you want to start to read, and 10 minutes later you find yourself nodding off because of all the ions in the air. It's really, really wonderful. Uh, but again, put on a tape of rain hitting a tin roof and watch how quickly you just go into a theta state. So there are ways that we can deal with anxiety and depression and other conditions without relying upon psychotropic medication. And finally, really good news on coconut oil. 
Memorial University in Newfoundland found that coconut oil could prevent neurodegeneration in diseases like Alzheimer's. A new study released by the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial uh, University of Newfoundland had found evidence of coconut oil treating and even reversing Alzheimer's disease. Let me repeat that. They were able to reverse the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease as well as other neurodegenerative diseases. Rather than study the dietary effects of coconut oil on neurodegeneration diseases, this was an in vitro study that examined rodent cortical neuron exposed to AB peptide and virgin coconut oil, most likely in a petri dish or a beaker inside a laboratory. It wasn't with humans. I've done it with humans, but not with just coconut oil, with a whole plethora, uh, and was able to reverse Alzheimer's in multiple people. In fact, one of them will be coming back in the spring. Uh, he is 99, and at 94 was gone, gone. Today, he's back. So, and we filmed this, so you'll be able to see this for yourself before and after. This study found that coconut oil had, quote, a positive effect on mitochondria size, that's the energy factories in the brain, and therefore it was assumed that the coconut oil had a protective effect on the neurons extracted from the rats. So that's very important. So that's it on health and nutrition. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back on, by the way, for all of you who were in the study, be either control group at home, or those of you who are on campus, and I had you fasting from 6 o'clock in the evening until 9 o'clock the next morning, no food. Well, and one person said, why is this? Well, King's College London just released a study yesterday, quote, 14-hour fasting improves hunger, mood, and sleep. Eating in a 10-hour window is associated with higher energy and mood and lower hunger levels and this was a major study done in Great Britain. And by the way, there's probably two or three hundred studies supporting that. That's why we fasted. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll on the telephone because we're trying to fix the audio part of my broadcast. Um, quite simply, I have a portable studio here, but it's in a very large room. Uh, the ceilings are 12 foot high. The room is about around 1,200 square feet, just this room. And this is where I broadcast from, do all my work. And uh, But it's not conducive to good quality sound. We broadcast over Comrex. In New York, I have a Comrex. Texas, I have a Comrex. And the trouble is that sometimes these go out of, out of balance, in which case you can hear voice sounds. Um, different. You'll start to hear popping on the S's and all types of audio issues. And that's what we've been having for quite some time. So we're bringing in audio engineers on Friday and uh, to fix it. And hopefully then, if that doesn't work, I'll just get new Comrex units. But in any case, I'm just going to be on the phone until then, the next couple of days. And uh, it won't it won't interfere in the quality of the material I'm sharing. Now, what are we going to do for the rest of the program? Remember I said we're going to look at the deeper issues and take you behind the scenes, beyond the headlines, right or left, conservative or liberal, because that's where we understand the, the meaning of what is happening. 
try to try to see why are we having all these wars, conflicts? Why do we need a digital currency? Why do they want us to own nothing and be happy? Why do they want us to have an identity card, which, by the way, they now have in Europe, European Union? Why? And we have no answers. All we have are instructions of what to do to be obedient, to be a good citizen. Well, we're pushing back on every way we can, and we're making a little progress. For example, we informed you about how bad the treaty was that uh, the United uh, the World Health, Organ- World Health Organization wants to have signed by all the countries in the world where they would literally control all health, uh, health quality issues in the world. So if they determined that there's a pandemic, they would have total control. Okay. Have they ever been right? They're one of the most corrupt organizations in the world. My God. I wrote an article detailing, footnoting, everything they've done wrong. And look at how many deaths they caused with COVID, promoting the vaccines, promoting remdesivir, and not promoting the things that worked. And who controls the World Health Organization? Bill Gates? You trust him? No one should trust Bill Gates. And then why don't you go back and watch the video of how Bill Gates treated his uh, employees? Then ask, is that a person you want to see the head of anything, unelected, uneducated, but very rich? No. So we're the first to broadcast that, and I'm going to be stepping that up because they're still out there trying to make sure that you have no choice. Even our own governmental agencies wouldn't have the choice. By treaty, the treaty supersedes all American laws, all of them. So when you're asleep and not paying attention to these things, these are the people working behind the scenes. So one day you wake up and, my God, suddenly there's all these rules you didn't know about. And people are not going to change. Get over that. (laughs) For someone who's worked with a lot of people, I can tell you, probably even terminally ill people who have no choice, they change or they die, they'd rather die with their orthodoxy and comforts in place than go through change. I'm saying that again, emphasizing it. Now, listen to what I'm saying, please. If a person would rather die than change, and they choose death, that tells you about the American psyche. Not in everyone, thank goodness, but in probably 90%. Or sustaining something, 90% will not. You get them back their health, oh, they're happy, and they go right back the old ways. So I'm going to be doing a series of programs and a documentary on understanding human nature from a different perspective. I've already started. I just did a pre-record for next week's Progressive Commentary Hour with probably the world's leading authority on this. So you're going to hear interest. I'm, I'm, I'm asking a simple question. Why in the hell, when you're given so much good information, don't you use it? What, what is wrong? What's missing? And that's so frustrating to everyone I know because if they're honest, then they're not. Almost everyone in the world who deals in healing on any level or advice that can help people, they'll tell you that the vast majority of people will not follow, even when their health, their life, their family's health and life depend upon it. So are these the same people if they can't make a right decision about what they're going to put in their child's body and hence abuse that child's body so the child ends up with diabetes or obesity or cancer or heart disease? Do you think they're going to be smart enough to know who to elect in a election and why? Do you think they're going to know what's behind Ukraine and what's behind uh, 
the conflict in the Middle East? No, they're not. So then we get frustrated by why aren't more people protesting? Why, why are only the young people with a few scattering of older people? Why, why aren't the average people protesting anything in America? <laughs> because they never have and they never will. We have to understand what human nature really is, and that is not going to be a pleasant picture. That's beside the conditioning. What are we hardwired to do or not do? So I'm going to do a whole series on this because too many people are saying, oh, I got vaccinated. What do I do? I've got side effects. How often do you live the show every day for 35 years? And you didn't hear me suggest anything but do your homework first? Well, you know, my family said, or, you know, what am I supposed to do? And you can think, wow, wow. So what we're doing now is I'm going to do a whole series of taking behind the scenes. And it starts right now. And you want to thank someone for today's show? Thank Sean Hannity. Because the other day, I knew he was having on Netanyahu. And I just wanted to see on two levels. As a broadcaster, how he approached the subject. But then as a human being with children, how did he approach the suffering of both the Jewish children who were killed by Hamas, which was completely uh, a tragedy, but also how do you approach the Palestinian children? Well, I was, I was not disappointed in that he is the worst interviewer in the history of television on several levels. First, he asked a question, this is on his normal show, and then he answers it. Everything is rhetorical with him. And then he allows these sometimes very interesting guests who have something to say, and they're lucky to get just a sentence in. And he goes on and on. He repeats himself ad nauseum. Now, has he been right on a few issues? Yes, on Hillary Clinton and the beach split, beach split and destroying 33,000 or whatever it was, uh, confidential emails, and that was a federal crime, and how they Comey and the FBI uh, wouldn't prosecute her. He did that. So to his credit, on a few issues, he's been right. But on the vast majority, he's been wrong. When it comes to Israel, he is 100% wrong. Because he and Netanyahu, all they could do is talk about the suffering of the Jewish people and the need to get rid of Hamas and its supporters altogether, not be concerned about human shields, and uh, to clear all of them out. That's genocide. No way to handle that. Yet who's got the best public relations program in the world? Better than any PR agency? Israel does. And who pays for that? Well, how about all the billions we send it? So the following are the people that Sean would not talk about, doesn't believe exist. These are real people. The first one is a human rights lawyer who proves Israel's committing genocide. And then we're going to go to Israeli, Israelis killing their own citizens. He said, last, uh, he said in this interview two nights ago with Netanyahu, oh, they're beheading children and burning them alive, and that is not true. That's demonstrably false. Now, it's bad enough when an innocent person is killed, even one. But what do you say when there's now close to 15,000 proven dead and probably another 15,000 in the rubble? We won't know for some time. That 
and none of that's condemned? It's just, well, it's just a cost. Didn't we hear all this from Obama, killing thousands with drones? And he just kept smiling and, you know, shooting basketball, and everyone said, isn't that cool? How, what kind of cognitive disconnect are we living in as a society? What the hell does this say about us as human beings, especially you Democrats? Republicans are, forget it. They're not even worth talking about. They're so dysfunctional. But boy, when it comes to war and people suffering, they support it to 100%. And Bernie Sanders, that fake, the same way. And the military industrial complex is setting back. Their stocks go up. They get bonuses. They get funded by the government. Our taxpayers paying for all this. The bombs that are blowing up Israel and Gaza, we pay for those. So we're also attached to that. Do you ever complain about it? Do you even care about it? Listen to these four clips, because this is the story behind the story. This is what, if you had these stories on major television, I think the American public, through all of its conditioning and all of its propagandized, all of its almost cult-like mindset of following authority, would find the door to exit this nightmare. Let's go to the first clip, please. So there's a lot I want to ask you about. Let's let's start off with one of the central kind of claims of your letter and your resignation, which is that what is happening now in Gaza is a genocide. And as you said, I know in other interviews, that's a very charged word. It's a very politicized word. But there is a real definition to it. And you are someone who's a human rights uh, attorney. So why why is it genocide? What's happening? It is a very charged word. It's a very abused word. People claim it. Uh, where it doesn't exist for political uh, gain, and they deny it where it does exist for political reasons as well. But I, I look at it through the lens of the UN Genocide Convention and the law as it stands there. Genocide, uh, and by the way, the, the convention is not a, just about punishment of genocide, it's about prevention of genocide. So it's not the kind of thing you can wait for the verdict of a court after mass murders have, have taken place and people have been, have been purged from their, from their lands. Um, so I, I said we shouldn't be uh, so reticent to address what looks very much like emerging genocide. Um, and if you just look at the convention on, on genocide and you see uh, the acts that are laid out that are genocidal acts, things like serious harm, including bodily harm, killings, which we've already seen more than 10,000, that number is going to go up just in a matter of a few weeks. Uh, we've seen that, that number of killings. The imposition of conditions calculated to bring about a destruction of uh, um, uh, conditions of life calculated to bring out destruction. That one is non-controversial by now because of the siege on Gaza, the closure that's been in place for many, many years, which is specifically designed to affect the living conditions uh, of the Palestinian people, limiting the amount of food and fuel and water and sanitation and medicine and construction materials and anything necessary for a dignified life calculated to make sure that it's not a place uh, where people are going to want to, to survive, making it hard for them to, uh, to, to survive. All of those acts so clearly documented. But what I said was very unique about this was the degree to which Israeli authorities have been explicit in their expressions of intent, because the Genocide Convention requires a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a particular group as such, a group defined uh, in this case, as Palestinians, uh, as Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians more, um, more, more broadly, normally you've got to dig through all sorts of dark, sealed, secret records to identify intent in genocide. 
Here you had the president, the prime minister, senior cabinet officials, senior military officials, and others, uh, think tanks associated with and working with the government, clearly, publicly, and on the record stating their genocidal intent. Dehumanizing Palestinians, denying there's a difference between civilians and combatants, uh, calling for wholesale wiping out, calling for a new Nakba, the prime minister right. uh, invoking a biblical uh, verse that refers to uh, wiping out everybody, men, women, Sorry. children, suckling babies, right. uh, livestock, the whole, um, so the, the whole, the whole uh, population, sparing them not, according to that verse. And this is, I mean, every day there are more and more of these. It's, this is the sound of impunity because people don't openly declare these things in public unless they're absolutely certain they're not going to be held accountable. So they have to be held accountable. Um, and in this case, such an extraordinary case of very clearly stated intent on the public record, I said, you have a prima facie case of genocide. Not genocide used in a metaphorical way, but a textbook convention-defined case of genocide. And then when you add to that the context of the actions we're seeing now, which is that this is just the latest phase in a series of ethnic purges that began in 1948 with the Nakba and then continued um, uh, from 1948 and 1967 inside uh, portions of Israel where there were other ethnic cleanses taking place. After 1967, continuing unabated in the West Bank to the point where the West Bank you know, you've seen pictures of the map. There's very little left of Palestinian life in the West Bank. It's all settled. Uh, and now you see the final um, uh, portion of that move, which is the ethnic cleansing in Gaza, starting with the north of Gaza and working their, working their way systematically and horrifically southward toward the gate with, um, with Rafa, with Egypt, clearly with the intention of ultimately making living conditions impossible for those who survive in the hopes that they will then go and die in the Sinai Desert somewhere. Right. Uh, problem. Okay. That's one top lawyer giving you the overview. But this is now an important one, too. This is Israel is killing its own citizens. Remember what we were told and horrific as it would have been? And it was horrific under any conditions. But a lot of it was not true. And the media and the government of the United States and Israel did not correct that. They should have corrected it. Here's that discussion. So you have um, two articles that I just wanted to touch on that I think relate to what you're saying because we've seen a simultaneous kind of caricature cartoon villain representation of Hamas and also at the same time the big lie that everything that Israel does is because they want to protect their citizens and they want Jews to be safe. And you have two, two stories that I think kind of undermine both of those narratives. So let's start with um, uh, the story that you guys did um, you and David Sheen did about uh, Israeli forces uh, allegedly shooting their own civilians, mm. according to a kibbutz survivor. The story that Israel told the world and told its people is that uh, on October 7th, uh, Hamas fighters crossed into Israel 
with one purpose, which was to find and kill as many Jews as possible. And that's when we had the, the fake stories about beheaded Jewish babies, the completely unverified stories of rapes. Not one person has testified to, to, uh, to that actually happening. Uh, and the fake story from Netanyahu of uh, Jews being lined up over mass graves and machine gunned into them like uh, the Nazis and their Ukrainian um, accomplices did at Babi Yar in, uh, in Kiev during the, the Second World War. None of that has uh, happened. But they say that 1,300 people were killed, and they say that Hamas killed all those people. Um, Hamas has not denied that Israeli civilians were killed, but what they said is that we never targeted them, we never went with the purpose of killing Israeli civilians. <laughs> and in fact, we had this uh, testimony from uh, an Israeli woman, Yasmin Parat, that's the story you just showed that I wrote with David Sheen, who gave an interview on Israeli state radio on October 15th, where she gave her account of what happened in Kibbutz Be'eri. She and her uh, partner had escaped from this rave. And again, the stories, the Israeli stories about the rave are also uh, quite questionable, but that's another point. She says, so we escaped from the rave when the rockets started coming over. She never says people were being machine gunned at the rave or anything like that. She says the Qassam rockets were coming over. So we escaped in the car to Kibbutz Be'eri. We found shelter in the home of a couple called Hadas and Adi Dagan. We hid there. I'm summarizing her story, but people can read it and listen to it. She gave this yeah. interview on Israel radio, and we have the whole audio with subtitles. People can listen to it themselves. So they found shelter at this house uh, with, uh, with this Israeli couple. Then the Palestinian fighters came. She said it was very frightening. They came. They found us in the safe room in the house. They took us to another house where eight people were being uh, held, and we were there. She said they didn't. They treated us very humanely. They didn't lay a finger on us. They were, you know, they gave us water. They they were very. She says they treated us humanely. That's her word. And everything was was calm. And she says they were asking them like, where where is the Israeli army? Where's the police? Because that's who they wanted to fight. The Hamas fighters were waiting for the Israeli forces to show up because that's who they came to fight. They didn't show up. So she said, the kidnappers told us, this is her you know, speaking, I'm paraphrasing, call the police and tell them that we're here with a bunch of Israeli civilians and they better come. And they actually told her, tell them that, they're, they're, that we have 40 people that we're holding when there were in fact only 12 Israelis in that particular situation. Anyway, she says, two hours later, the Israeli forces showed up and they started a gunfight. They just started shooting indiscriminately and even firing tank shells into the houses. And um, she says in the interview with the is Israeli radio uh, host uh, that he says, so is it possible that our forces killed some of these people? She says, yes. Undoubtedly. He asks her a second time, and she says, yes, that's what happened. She says that a lot of these people were killed. And people have to understand, Katie, that Israel has something called the Hannibal Doctrine, which, which says that if Israeli forces are seeing someone, one of theirs being abducted, they have the right to use overwhelming force to kill the captors and the person who's being taken, the prisoner, 
because Israel doesn't want its enemies ever to have living Israelis as um, you know potential bargaining chips. Right. So they used the Hannibal Doctrine. Now, Yasmin Parat was, was the clearest and one of the first testimonies, but now more and more are coming out, and our friends at Mondowise did a follow-up article where they highlighted some of these other testimonies, which, by the way, are all appearing in Israeli media, media in Hebrew. They're not appearing in um, English language media, except independent media like the Electronic Intifada and Mondo-wise, right. although now I'm starting to see others picking them up. So this is another uh, testimony that I found at the JTA, the Jewish Te Telegraphic Agency, which is another incident. But you can see here, they continue to drive. So she, this person, this, this survivor is saying that they were, that, she was taken with a group of Israelis in the back of a tuk-tuk, a little, you know, open, open back, like a little pickup truck. And she says, they continued to drive with us in the back toward Gaza when an IDF helicopter appeared above us. At some point, the helicopter shot at the terrorists, the driver and the others. They were screaming in the tuk-tuk. All the terrorists were dead and we were alive except for, for uh, one of the women with us. She had died in the arms of her daughter who had come to the kibbutz. So this is another incident where it was the Israeli army shooting at the uh, Palestinians and at the Israelis who were with them indiscriminately. And more and more examples of that are coming out. So what needs to happen, Katie, is there needs to be, first of all, people need to know Israel lies about everything and you should not take anything Israel says at face value, not about beheaded babies, not about uh, uh, rapes, not about uh, uh, people being machine gunned over mass graves. And there should be an independent inquiry, perhaps an international inquiry into exactly what happened on October 7th because uh, Israel is not telling the truth. But I don't think Israel will allow that because it's trying to push the... Um, the narrative that Hamas equals ISIS in order to justify or at least distract people's attention from the genocide. And this, Katie, is why Israel, I think, is not interested in having Israeli civilians released from Gaza, even though Hamas has said it wants to release all the civilians and has, in fact, started doing so. Because the civilians who come out, just as the civilians who are held in their houses uh, on October 7th and afterwards, are saying we were treated very humanely. And that's what, what happened with the elderly lady, Yocheved Lifshitz, who was released uh, yesterday night. She came out and said... Okay. <clears throat> so you're getting a backstory. Now, that does not, in any way, shape, or form, dismiss the severity and the cruelty of the raid itself by Hamas. But it gives you a more clear picture that we're being propagandized to only accept one side of the story. This is one of those divisive good and bad. And on the bad side, they've now been able to, to conflate Hamas with Palestinians, Palestinians with every child, every person, 2.5 million Hamas, but they're not. The vast, 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 vast majority of Palestinians are just decent people who are not warriors. They just want to live in peace. But we're not allowing that. Now, there's a longer clip that I don't have time for. I'll play that on um, another show. It's with 
the person who's really keen on telling this story about what goes on in the Empire Files, Abby Martin. I'll do that tomorrow. But we're going to skip down to the Palestinian American with an American passport, a journalist, describes what happened when she, and you can see this at the beginning, where she and her mother are going for a walk and, uh, in Gaza, and suddenly they're approached and, uh, and they're demanded their, their IDs and papers and passports, and then you know, she wants to go on with her walk, and then they arrest her. Now, why is this clip important? It's important because this happens every day and has for decades. And what would you like be like if you were an American and you feared at 2 o'clock in the morning someone crashing through your door, confiscating your house, keeping you in one room for the next three weeks, not lying outside, having a curfew where uh, a Jewish holiday is celebrated and that all of the 136,000 Palestinians have to stay inside, curfewed. If you go outside, if you're found, this is the order, and you'll hear this in the interview tomorrow. This ex-Israeli soldier said, our orders were simple. If you find anyone outside after curfew, shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. So the moment the curfew's coming, all the Palestinians are rushing to get in their house. And... Uh, and also, one of the other, I've been watching all these tapes about the soldiers telling the truth about what happens. And one guy said that, well, it was his job to go into the West Bank or Gaza and just stop people at random and take their car keys and take their IDs. Oh, we're going to give them back. And he said, we never gave any of them back. He said, you go into the headquarters, and there'll be a drawer, a giant drawer filled with thousands of keys and, and uh, people's IDs. Well, how are these people supposed to get around? What's supposed to happen to their cars? And sometimes they can't confisc- just confiscate his car. And nothing was ever done. What, the, what if that was you? What if you were living in a small town and suddenly the police stopped you, took the keys to your car, or took your car, took your ID, and never gave it back? And that was just normal. And the courts are totally corrupt. And they're not going to protect you. That you'll hear tomorrow. But just one woman, mind you, she's an American citizen who is Palestinian and a journalist, and see how she was treated. Then ask yourself, how would you feel if this happened to you or could happen every day of the week and you had no redress at all? Let's go to the clip. So my name is Haya Yasmin Nasser. I'm um, I'm Palestinian American. Um, I'm a journalist. I uh, produce and present my travel segment on NBC TV, where I uh, tell the stories of different cultures and people around the world. Uh, that day, I was uh, I had just finished my live episode for my show, The Morning Show, and I was visiting Hebron, Al Khalil, uh, to uh, talk about tourism, the glass making and uh, pottery making, and just visiting the city. So I finished my live episode on TV, and I went to the old city to walk around and film some more for social media. So as I was walking in that area, 
uh, Israeli soldiers were sitting on the side, and we were walking on the side on the sidewalk. We were walking through a street, and they started yelling and stopped us uh, to not go through that street. So they uh, first questioned the guy who was with us, taking us around, and. So they took his ID, and all of a sudden, I see them starting to ask him to like take off, uh, pull up his pants, and search him, and stand at a distance. So I decided I don't want to go there. I decided I would like to step back and leave. So the minute I said, "Okay, never mind," I told him I don't want to go. They started yelling, saying, "Give us your ID." So I I handed I had my American passport on me, and I was with my mother and him. So we all gave our IDs. And as they were checking it, one guy uh, approached me, one of the soldiers, and started claiming that I'm filming them. So, as you can see in the video that was posted by many platforms, I raised my phone. I claimed that I'm not filming. And as I'm saying that to that soldier, I see another female soldier start charging towards me in an attacking way. So automatically, I pulled my camera up and I. Started recording, and that's the footage I got on my camera. And I said, "If you touch me, I will film you." And obviously, she attacked me, and another started attacking me. They started uh, dragging me, um, holding me by my arms. Actually, one was holding me by my arm, and then the other was hold holding me by my neck. And I kept yelling, "You can't touch me!" You can't touch me, and you come with us.、Uh, they pushed my mom. My mom kept saying, "Where, where are you taking her? Why would you want to take her?"、Uh, she said she's not filming you. So yeah, they、uh, kept pushing us till they got us into an area where they had a military-like area where there were soldiers and there were rooms. So in that moment, I literally raised the American passport up high, thinking, "Okay." This is my last resort. This is my only hope that I can be safe. This is my only safety net in this moment. And she literally pushed her whole body onto mine. I could feel her whole body and the rifle on my body. And her face was inches away from my face, and yelled at the top of her lungs, "I don't give a." Today, a part of me just wishes my phone was recording or anyone was recording these sentences because, as a Palestinian American, I'm constantly asked,、um, "But you're American. How come you get harassed? How come you continue to get oppressed when you go home? How come you grew up in such in so much injustice?" I'm like, it doesn't matter. This is exactly the answer to all my colleagues, all my friends, all the people. I lived around who are American and don't understand the situation. They don't care. The minute you're Palestinian, everything else gets cancelled. So in that moment, my American passport was worthless, and I got pushed into that room with my mother.、Um, inside that room, I was、uh, put behind a barrier, and my mother behind another barrier. And、uh, they stood behind it. One,、uh, it was two female soldiers.、Um, one、uh, had her gun pointed at my mother. The other was facing me with her gun, and she started yelling for me to strip. So in that moment, I said, "Why would I take off my clothes? Like, what did I do to take off my clothes right now?" I said, "No, I won't take off my clothes." So she started going even crazier. Take off your, all your clothes now and put them on the floor. All your clothes and put them on the floor. 
So in that moment, my mom interfered and said, what do you mean take off all your clothes? You can see everything. Like, you know, I'm not wearing anything baggy. I'm not, you can see my body shape. You can, I have nothing on me. And she started yelling at my mom. She started saying, you shut up, you stay quiet. And in that moment, I just looked around in that room and I saw the gun on my mom's stomach, literally touching it. And my eye was literally trying, like every time I say it, I still get like this gush and these, but like my eyes were trying to see if her finger was on the trigger or if she was just holding the gun. That's like literally in that moment. And I realized things were getting out of control. So I'm like, okay, Haya, take a deep breath and just give in, just follow orders right now because you don't know how the situation can end. And the situation can end in many different ways. I looked around, this is a closed room where with two militarized women on gun, at gunpoint uh, being asked to strip. And at that point I'm like, okay, my body can, you know, I can take off my clothes now. I'd rather do that than be killed. And no one will ever hear my story or no one will ever know what happened in this room. So I did start taking off my clothes. Um, I took off, I pulled up my shirt. Um, I didn't take off my bra, as I said. I, I didn't take off my bra. She said, you have one option, uh, two options. Either you take off your bra or I touch you. I said, go ahead and touch me. So she did, she touched me. Um, and then I had to take off my pants. Um, I took off my pants and then she said, uh, take off your shoes. I, I rolled down my pants all the way down and then I put it back on and she said, take off your shoes and your socks. Um, I took off my shoes and I, as I'm hanging on to one foot, taking off my socks, my foot was shaking. So she started yelling again, why are you shaking? And I'm like, why am I shaking? I'm shaking because I feel unsafe right now. And she said, you feel unsafe? I'm unsafe. I was like, okay, I have to even take it down even more of a notch and say, okay, no, I'm just you know, feeling unsafe. I took off my socks, showed everything calmly, moved slowly and calmly. And yeah, when the strip search was complete, um, we were let go. The one thing that I continuously keep saying I wanted to put my story out there is this is not the first time I've been strip searched. I really want us to call it for what it is. And this is pure sexual abuse. This is in, in this context, whether in any definition we want to use in gender based violence and in this case, violence against women, this is sexual abuse. You are in this context of two militarized women at gunpoint asking you to take off your clothes. My body is sacred and my body is in that moment. It's like it's my body. This is my sacred body and I have the right to do whatever I want with it. But under apartheid and in front of these militarized women, I had no control over my body. This is exactly what it is. We don't have control over anything as Palestinians under occupation, zero. We don't have control over our bodies. We don't have control over our movement. We don't have control over our simple daily life matters and movements. And this has been the case all through my life, growing up, having to cross checkpoints daily, having a... Okay, when was the last time you saw someone interviewed on NBC or even on Sean Hannity just saying what it's like to be a journalist, to be American, 
from Palestinian background and be forced with a gun to your mother's belly and a gun right at your head to strip when you've done nothing wrong. But this happens every day without exception. And so why don't we hear that part of the story, the context, the history, as to why someone may want to fight back. And if you say Israel has a right to defend itself, did Nelson Mandela have a right with the other people who have been beaten, killed, murdered, denied rights in South Africa? Did they have a right to fight back? How about the Irish in 1913, 1916? Did they have the right to fight back against British rule? Did they have a right to fight back when all the food was taken out of Ireland and given to merchants and people in Great Britain so over a million and a half people had starved to death? Did Native Americans have a right to fight back? Did any of the groups, from Colombia to Peru to Argentina to Paraguay, did they have a right to fight back after being held captive if they were liberal or belonged to a union? So how is it that Ukraine has a right to fight back against an oppressor, but the Palestinian people have been held captive longer than any of these people? And yet that story you don't tell because it would undermine the veracity and credibility of what you were sharing. I think that should be shared. And that's why if I had not watched Sean Hannity, I had a different program planned for today. But because I did, maybe someone who knows Sean will say, Sean, why don't you have anyone on who's just a normal, law-abiding Palestinian citizen and what their life is like living under an apartheid, open prison system for over 70 years. But he won't have anyone like that. And if he did, he wouldn't let him talk. Because if you ever noticed him when he has a so-called debate, uh, he just can't, he just has this impulse to jump over everyone and not listen to what anyone's saying. But he is a representative of much of the media and much of the far right. So, of course, they want a blank check for Israel and not a penny to stop and rebuild or help the Palestinians. So, that's what we're dealing with. For those listening from WBI, we're going to say goodbye. You're going to go to the news, and then we're going to go to top the RPRN.live. And if you'd like to call in and share your views, you can give us a call at 888-874-4888. Now, last week, a week ago today, I introduced something that has taken me five years to finalize. And I didn't realize how difficult it would be. I didn't realize how difficult some of the ingredients and the licensing and how, how you have to order a certain amount and how rare it is and it might wait a year to get ingredients. But finally, it arrived. It's called the Anti-Aging Elixir. It's a replacement for the uh, it's it's relevant for the older cream that I had. What I'd like for you to do is this: just ask yourself, what would you like your skin to look like? Would you like it healthier, smoother? What about the crepey skin around your neck and on your thighs and under your arms? Outside of surgery, which doesn't work for this. There's not a whole lot you can do, and people generally don't realize that it's going to happen until one day they wake up and it's there, like gray hair. Well, my whole intent was to create 
quite simply, as I do with everything I create, the finest product of its kind on the planet. I don't care how rich a corporation is, how much money they invest, 95% that's going to be in their advertising and their boxing and display. It's not going to be in the product itself. If you doubt me, why don't you go over to any store, high-end store, with quality products and read the ingredients. Read every label, write down the ingredients, Google those ingredients and say, wow, all these? Now write down what they're promoting and see if you can find the test to prove, the clinical studies proving they're honest and accurate. And the average product that would even come in the same category as mine is around 500 bucks per 1.7 ounces. But I've introduced mine, four ounces, more than twice the quantity, hence lasting longer, and also read my ingredients. I want to give you a little glossary. For example, my number one ingredient is whole life, a whole leaf aloe vera, the finest type of aloe vera, the, uh, the, what is called the Barbadoninus miller. It's the king of all aloe veras, and it's organically grown right here in the United States in the, San, in the uh, valley down in Texas, Rio Grande Valley. This superior aloe is mineral-rich, grown in volcanic soil, harvested and filtered by hand, and is rich in monoatomic elements, utilizing the whole leaf rather than just the inner fillet, fillet gel of polysaccharides. You get the vitamins and minerals of polysaccharides, the enzymes, the amino acids, the growth factors, the wound hormones. Aloe increases cell wall permeability, thereby allowing nutrients easier access while facilitating the removal of toxins. Aloe is soothing and moisturizing, anti-inflammatory, and can help stimulate collagen and elastin production. This whole leaf aloe is blended with ionized and herborn fusions of a trisilica blend containing oat and straw, uh, straw extract. It contains high level of antioxidant compounds rich in silica and sulfur and selenium and mixed tocopherols, natural stable emollients. But then you also have uh, nettle extract, extremely rich in silica, sulfur, and selenium for good skin and nails and hair. You've got horsetail extract, rich in silica, helps produce new collagen fibers to rejuvenate connective tissue. You've got a tripeptide, what is called a palmateral peptide, and this is a, an effect that stimulates the synthesis of six major constituents of the skin matrix, the dermal, the epidermal, um, the fibrinocin, the hyaluric acid, the laminin-5, this smooths wrinkles from the inside out by rebuilding the skin where it's needed. And these extracts, or cellular matrix-derived peptides, are exact replicas of natural skin uh, peptides. So it promotes skin repair, participate in wound healing, and uh, stimulates the macromolecule. And that doesn't even get us to the main ingredients, the Swiss apple stem cells, a rare Swiss apple and plant stem cells aid in the protection of human stem cells, delaying senescence of essential cells, preserving a youthful appearance in vitality of the skin. Well, I'm only one-fifth through the ingredients. What you won't find in my product are all the other ingredients you find in all these more expensive products. So does mine work in about 
30 to 60 days, I'm going to be asking people to send in their review. Give yourself 60 to 90 days. I've only had it used on two persons, uh, Luann and myself. I only got two small samples while we were producing it. And I won't tell you anything that we experienced except that I'm confident that in time, no matter what the price, if you paid $1,000, you will not buy something better for healthier for your skin with greater outcomes. Okay? Just like green stuff, just like red stuff, just like Power Bear Blast, just like Heavenly Aloe, and all the other things I create. It takes a long time. I don't discuss when I'm creating them. And it all has to be based on good science. But in the end, it's good for you. So if you're interested in this unique product, it's Aegis Answer. I'm giving you a 30-day window at half price, $99.95. Now, mind you, it is a, in my opinion, it is the best product in the world. No one could duplicate my product. If they did, they'd be charging 1000 bucks for it. But don't take my word for it. Do your homework. Go to the high-end stores. Go to Macy's and all the other stores and ask them, what is your best product? Look at it. Write down what it promises and what it contains. Then go do your homework and see. Gee whiz, Gary doesn't have any of these ingredients. And they have all these ingredients. And I don't want those on my skin. Or you may. But uh, if you want this, uh, there's a maximum you can buy because we're limited in how many we got in our first order. They got us what they could, and it takes time. But you can call to get this product now. And it'll be shipped out today. You can call 877 627-5065, or you can call Neil in the Vitamin Closet or go visit him and pick it up there at 35th, 35 West 35th Street, 12th floor, and his number is 646-926-5430, 646-926-5430, or just go up to Gary, Gary's uh, products, and uh, you can download an order for yourself. And again, you don't have to use a lot of it. A lot of these you have to slather all kinds of stuff on. This one you don't. You put about the size of a, a quarter in the middle of your forehead, massage it in across the forehead, around the eyes, and wherever you want to put it, on your neck, your hands. But take a picture of your skin where you're going to apply it every day before you do that. The skin must be clean, so clean your skin. Take a shower before you're putting it on. And it's got the most wonderful, natural, not synthetic, flavor. Cherry almond. It smells great, but it is great. In my opinion, there is no product ever created for the skin as great as this product. It took five years to do it and lots of effort. So that's it. Thank you all for listening today, and have a nice day.